The following program is a presentation of Grace Communion International and Grace Communion Seminary and is made possible by generous donations from viewers like you. On this episode of You're Included, theologian Dr. Andrew Purvis shares from his experiences in ministry, stressing the importance of sharing the gospel in specific and personal ways. Our host is Dr. J. Michael Fazell. Thanks for being with us again. You're very welcome. In your work uh, over many, many years, uh, undoubtedly you've had some aha moments. Can you tell us about one or two of those? Interesting question. You mean in the classroom or? In the classroom or in general study of, on your own or? Uh, walking down the street one day. Yes, let me see where I go with this. Um, one that immediately comes to mind, I haven't thought about this in a long time because it was painful. Um, I was in pastoral ministry for four and a half years in the United States, and there was a middle-aged to elderly woman in my congregation who was challenging. And I was on the job a week. And I was told in no uncertain terms I had to pay a pastoral call on this woman. And I was told she was difficult. So I was brand new and very nervous and went to pay my pastoral call on her. And we chatted a little while. And then I got up and I said goodbye. And I got out of there. And as uh, Reinhold Niebuhr once said, I had made my pastoral call and took the rest of the afternoon off in order to get my self-respect back. <laughs> and um, that night, my clerk of session in the Presbyterian Church, that's the senior um, layperson, clerk of our, our board of management, um, called me up and said, uh, Andrew, I received a call from so-and-so. Uh, it was appreciated that you made the pastoral call, but you did not pray at the end of the pastoral call. And I said, did I not? I was so terrified I just ran away. And, well, she is very upset that you didn't pray. Well, that was a tremendous learning because all kinds of people no doubt visit this person and do good work. But one of the things I was to do as the pastor that it hadn't entered my head, I was to be the person, at least if nothing else, I would pray for that person. So that was a, a, major, um, a major learning. The, the, the second one event that comes to mind um, is also somewhat painful. I was about a year and a half into pastoral ministry when, and I don't recall the circumstances, going back 30 years now, I realized I had no spiritual life. Um, I had studied in four major Europeans around, uh, European uh, or universities around the, the world, in Europe and the United States. Nobody taught me to pray. And I began to realize that this was a, <laughs> this was a problem. And um, I started casting around who would teach me to pray. And I couldn't find anybody to teach me to pray. Um, eventually, I discovered uh, a group in Washington, D.C. called the Church of the Savior, an intentional formational community of discipleship led by a wonderful man, Gordon, and Gordon Cosby and his wife, Mary Cosby, and I went off to do a retreat. I was there four days, D.C., 
the first 26 hours of which were in silence, absolutely devastated me. I'd never been silent that long in my life. And we went through a program, and I came back to my little country congregation in western Pennsylvania and got up on the Sunday morning after I arrived back and said, folks, I've had a major experience. I think I've just been converted. And I think I realize that I've got to have a relationship with Jesus and I've got to become a man of prayer. And I just went, I'm being really candid with you. And a group of older women from my congregation came up to me after the service and said, they called me Dr. Andrew. Dr. Andrew, we knew something was going to happen to you because we've been praying for you. And that was a real learning. And I tell my students, may you be blessed with a group of older women who sit on the back pew who will pray you into conversion as their minister. <laughs> um, I, I, that's a really serious learning for me. Um, as a seminary professor, it's been less dramatic perhaps. Um, but one learning I think I would want to share that is not so, not, it's not dramatic, but it's very serious. And that is learn, make, make sure you don't fake it. Be honest with the people with whom you're dealing. They will suss out a fake. And don't be afraid, even as her professor, don't be afraid to be vulnerable. Don't be afraid to say, you know, I don't know. Um, I find more and more as I get older that I'm, I hit more and more walls. I can't explain. I hit a wall. But when I hit a theological wall, I tell my students, I get a question in class, and I will wander around, and I'll think out loud, and then I'll, I'll say, I've gone so far. I need to think some more about this. But I tell you what I'm thinking at the moment is I may be hitting a theological wall that I cannot get over, but you know what I do when I hit a theological wall? I get down on my knees and I thank God for the mystery of the gospel. And so our theology ought to drive us to our knees. And it took me a while to, be, to learn that and to be comfortable with vulnerability in the classroom. And I think that's important in ministry in general. I'm not a person who knows all the answers. I'm actually not really that bright. I'm not, I don't know everything. As I mentioned in another talk, I was a high school dropout. I haven't had a classical education. I don't read Latin, which I did, and then I could intimidate my students, but I don't, uh, and so on and so forth. And so what's the point in pretending? I've had a very good education, and I am good at what I do, but there's no point in pretending. Be honest. Be vulnerable. That doesn't mean be soppy. That doesn't mean use vulnerability as a manipulative tool to earn the sympathy of your audience. That's just codependency and manipulation. But genuine vulnerability, because I am a person speaking to people. I, I've read more books than my students, but nonetheless, um, I don't know everything. And it's all right to be vulnerable. And it's even all right in appropriate ways with appropriate boundaries to be intense and to be emotional. Um, I heard a student say, uh, came to me, a, a student who's a friend, 
and uh, said, so-and-so was wanting to take your class on such-and-such and wanted to know what you were like as a teacher. And the student, um, middle-aged woman, said to me, so I just was candid, and I thought you might be interested to know. I said, with Dr. Purvis, you take notes for half the class, and then he starts to preach. Once he gets really worked up, he starts to preach, and then you put your notes down, and you listen to the sermon because he's moved from the classroom into the sanctuary. I praise God for that because the borderline between theology and proclamation ought not to be that far apart. Because theology and exegesis, the interpretation of Scripture, they are for the proclamation of the gospel. Exegesis without proclamation is an abortive process. As Calvin knew, theology is for the proclamation of the gospel. So we ought to get to messing a little bit and into preaching, I think. Tell us about uh, some of your mentors, uh, the key people, formative people in your life. My first book, The Search for Compassion, I dedicated to my father, an unlettered man, a barber, left school at 14. But he taught me a number of lessons that are very dear. He taught me to love his wife. A man must love his wife. He loved my mother. Um, He taught me about the love for one's wife. Um, He taught me about honesty in one's dealings, and he taught me about humor. My father died two days before my first child was born. I was in the United States, pastor at the time. My father was in Edinburgh in Scotland, and um, my mother called me the night of his death and said, don't come home for the funeral. You need to be with Kathy, my wife, because she was due two days later on her due date. Brendan was born on his due date, our oldest of the three children, and Brendan's birth was announced to my family at my father's funeral. This is a very personal story, if I may. Um, I've never worked out the emotions of my father's death and my first child's birth. But I know, and this is a metaphor, that my father and Brendan and Jesus and I will sit down together in the kingdom of God. I can't explain that. It's, a, it's more than a metaphor. It's a statement of expectation. But that those whom we have lost and loved a while, we will be with. My father, my wife Kathy, um, during my cancer seven and a half years ago, I was off for eight months. Um, she was staggering. Uh, she used to come to, I was in hospital for 14 days. She used to come in the morning and we read the daily office of the Episcopal Church. Why do we do that? It's structured. We like it. So she'd come in eight o'clock in the morning. We'd pray the daily office. She'd chant the canticles. Nurses, doctors coming and going there. She's singing the Te Deum. And at the end of the day, she would sing, uh, pray evening prayer and these wonderful blessings at the end of the day. And I came to see that my, my rhythm in hospital was morning and evening prayer, and her strength and her love, her support have been absolute. Nothing in my life and career would have happened without her. In ter- uh, professionally and academically, James and Tom Torns have been tremendously important to me. Um, their theology, and more than just their published works, them personally um, have been uh, a great influence on me and have undoubtedly been the primary 
influences in shaping my own thinking and my own work. I'm so grateful, so grateful for the two of them. I must mention my now-retired colleague at Pittsburgh Seminary, Charles Partee, um, a magnificent Calvin scholar. But for nearly 30 years, we've been colleagues and friends, and he has been an amazing encourager, uh, scold sometimes when he told me I was, I could do better when I didn't at times believe what I could do. Um, but I would honor him by saying that uh, I love Charles Partee. He's a wonderful Calvin scholar and um, dear friend and uh, will be teaching a course, although he's retired uh, in the fall with him, um, on the theology of H.R. Mackintosh, the wonderful Scottish theologian who taught Tom Torrance. Uh, there are many others, of course, along the way, but uh, these would have been the principal mentors. You mentioned a story about the last time you saw Tom Torrance. Yes. Do you mind sharing that? It's a lovely story, and it's dear to me. Um, I was in Edinburgh. This was six months before my cancer, and actually wasn't feeling well. I knew something was up, but was a little... Uh, a little unbrave, shall we say, cowardly about dealing with it. Anyway, um, I called Tom and said uh, I was in town, and he said, come round to his house next morning. So I went round at 10 o'clock, rang the doorbell. His, his wife answered the door and said, Andrew, Tom is upstairs in his study waiting to see you. And I walked up the stair and was just about to knock on the door, and he must have heard me coming, and he opened the door and greeted me with the words, Andrew, how lovely to see you again. I pray for you every day. Wow. I walked through the door and into his uh, study, an extraordinary study, and he said, sit down in that armchair. Karl Barth sat in that chair. I thought, wow, sitting in the chair Karl Barth sat on me. We chatted for a while, and um, after midday, we went out for lunch and had a, I remember I had a chicken sandwich, and Tom got up to pay for lunch at the end of the sandwich in the bar and dropped a huge wad of pound notes, and there was the great Tom Torrance, the most important English-speaking and theologian of the second half of the 20th century, on his knees in a bar, picking up pound notes. <laughs> and then we went back to his study for a while and chatted furthermore. And about three o'clock in the afternoon, I said I had to go. And he said, well, what of my books don't you have? And I mentioned there was one that I didn't have. And he pulled it off the shelf and signed it. And then he said, before you go, I need to pray for you. And his study was lined with stacks, uh, like in a library, not books against the wall, but stacks coming out at right angles from the wall. And round the back was a pre-do, a little prayer desk, way at the back in the corner. And he took me by the arm, brought me around there, and had me kneel at the prayer desk and laid hands on me and prayed for me. I felt like Elisha, that the work that he had begun was being carried on. Um, that I was, I, I was charged with a theological task, part of a theological heritage that goes back through Irenaeus, through Athanasius, the Cappadocian fathers, through Luther and Calvin, through John MacLeod Campbell, William Milligan, H.R. Mackintosh, Tom Torrance. This, this is my heritage. These are, these are my, my teachers. And, and my commitment has been, I will not just read what Tom Torrance says about these people, but I realized a while back I had to make them my teachers too. And to go back and to, to read these primary texts again has been transformational for my teaching. And now I discover my students love these people. They get so excited by Gregory of Nazianzus and Macrina and Gregory of Nyssa and 
Basil of Caesarea and Irenaeus and on it goes. They, they, where, why weren't we taught this? I, I teach doctorate ministry students. Read these old guys. Why did nobody teach us this stuff? And they come alive. The, the great theological heritage of the church. You do a lot of teaching about pastoral work, and your wife is a pastor. Right. How does that work in, in the family dynamics? Uh, graciously, uh, it's complex. There are boundary issues. Um, you can only do so much theology and pastoral work without going kind of nuts sometimes. <laughs> you know, there are times when we just got to watch World Cup soccer or... <laughs> or go out to dinner as a couple going out to dinner after 35 years of marriage, um, when we really just want to talk about our three children and not about what she's preaching on Sunday or what book I'm writing. Um, so we are a normal couple that does normal things and uh, enjoys doing the things that a couple of 35 years marriage enjoy, companionship and affection and gentleness. But we also talk theology. Um, we read books in common. Uh, I'm not sure if I could, I should say this quietly, but I'm not sure if she reads my books anymore. Um, and sometimes I put this to her and say, have you read what I said? Oh, she said, I don't so much read them. I live them when you're writing them. So maybe that's the case. Um, but uh, I am a pastoral associate in her congregation. It's a small urban congregation in Pittsburgh. So she's my boss, and that functionally means that when she's not in the pulpit for one reason or another, I get to preach without being paid. Um, <laughs> but uh, the congregation loves it, really does when we're in the pulpit together. It seems to, I don't know, uh, indicate something that we're together and pulling in the same direction. Uh, she's a Calvin scholar by trade, uh, more than I am, and uh, she's a good theologian. Um, sometimes it can get intense. Can I tell you one time when it got intense? Sure. Um, this the curious story. I am a convert to the need to recover the doctrine of the ascension. I am big on the ascension because the ascension means that Jesus is in the present tense, not in the past tense. And without the ascension, he's not present in power. And so I'm I'm a big advocate for the recovery of the ascension. It ripples through a lot of my recent books. And this past uh, spring, um, I finally asked Kathy, are you going to have a special service on Ascension Day Thursday? No, 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 we're going to do Ascension on the Sunday before. No, you can't do Ascension on the Sunday before. You need to do Ascension Day. And we need to have Ascension Day parties and give Ascension Day uh, presents as we have Christmas parties and Christmas presents and special services at Christmas and celebrate communion on Ascension Day because as the Lord descended Incarnation Day, so the Lord ascended Ascension Day. This is counterbalanced, equally important. And she said, I can tell you're a seminary professor and don't have to deal with real people with busy lives. I wouldn't get away with having an Ascension Day party. I said, you've got to have an Ascension Day party. Actually, we, we got kind of testy at each other um, Maybe next year she'll have an Ascension Day service. I don't know. But uh, when we push the Ascension off to the edges of our pastoral and liturgical consciousness, something really gets lost. That is Jesus, not just as a past Lord, but as a present Lord, so that we speak of him in the present tense. And yet, now and then, uh, we'll get into a, 
Uh, she'll say, well, what do you think of that sermon? And I, I only comment on the good ones. And they're mostly good. But now and then I will make a comment. <laughs> and she'll say, why didn't you like it? And I'll say, well, you used ought too many times. Or you talked about the gospel as on offer. It's more, it's more than offer. It's here. It's yours. It's, it's yours. Uh, well, she said, but I was, uh, so sometimes we can get in little tussles. God does not deal with everyone in the same way. Right. You've written. Right. Why is that important to know? Because we're not generic. We are not particular instances of the genus humankind. Because you and me, we're specific, particular, actual, real human beings with real autobiographies and histories, and we're complex people. We're people, and people's lives are different. Our histories are complex. There are things we share in common and much that's different. Um, I speak of God with a Scottish accent. I hope I still do. Um, And my sense of things is actually European. I 31 years, I lived my life in Edinburgh in Scotland. I'm not American. Different. So, um, different heritages and different family dynamics. Um, so it seems to me that one person needs thinking biblically here, a demon cast out. Another needs to be told, you are forgiven. Another needs to be said, get off your pallet and walk. Another needs to be told, sell what you have and give it to the poor. Another needs to be told, climb down from the tree and I'm going to come and eat dinner at your house today. The knack, the trick, the, the discernment in pastoral work is to know which aspect of the Lord's work is the word of gospel grace for a particular person on a particular day. That a, a parishioner with whom one might speak is not a generic person for whom there's a cookie-cutter response, but that it's personal and particular it's situationally connected. I'm not arguing for situational ethics, that it's all relative. What I am, am arguing is that it's particular and personal. And I learned this lesson when I did wrote my book, Pastoral Theology in the Classical Tradition, and I read the great classical texts of the church. At the end of Gregory the Great's book of pastoral rules, he has, I think it is, 72 case studies, each a paragraph. Pastoral care of a tall person may be different from pastoral care of a smaller person. Pastoral care of a man may be different from pastoral care of a woman. Pastoral care of a poor man may be different from pastoral care of a... Just instances, all kinds of instances about that the pastoral work, the gospel is brought to you in your context specifically, not generically. And I think that's both the challenge, but also the, what makes pastoral work interesting, because you never know what you're going to confront um, with the myriad of interruptions that makes the pastor's day, because pastoral work is about being interrupted, mm. I think. And you know, as I often said, you know the Lord, you know your people, and you must know your people. You cannot sit in an office all day. You cannot just run the shop all day. My friend Eugene Peterson is great in this. We're not shopkeepers. You've got to know your people. You've got to know them in their workplaces, in their family places, in their play places, and 
the grocery store, you know your people, and you make these connections. Absolutely critical. And the good pastor, the faithful pastor, I think, is the person with a heart for that kind of dual, dual connectedness. As we come to a close here, let me ask, what if there was one thing that you want people to know about God, what would that be? You belong to him because he loves you, because in Jesus Christ he has elected you to be his son, his daughter, and that nothing in this world, not even your foolishness and your silliness, can separate you from what God has chosen for you. You belong to God, and you are unilaterally and unconditionally loved. Now, therefore, live in terms of that freedom. Live in terms of that good news. Honor what it means that you are loved and will remain loved. Because, and let me put it very specifically, in the freedom of his love and in the power of the Spirit, Jesus knows you by name. You've been watching You're Included, a production of Grace Communion International.